Well, welcome again to City Life. If you're visiting with us, it's great to have you. If you've been here for any amount of time, it's also great to have you. A lot of uh, students moving up, whether you're working your way through grade school, you're making your way into middle school, and then like like Amanda and Cole were saying, whether you've been coming here for three weeks, you've been coming here for three years, uh, we believe everybody's got a next step because as we're talking about in this series, it's a long haul, this following Christ. And there's different seasons that God calls us into, different uh, ways to serve, different giftings and callings that we operate in as we follow him. So I would encourage you, if you've never been to Engage, we've only done it once, right? So feel free if, if you're like, man, I wouldn't mind the child care and the pizza and to hear from Pastor Juice, then come show up, right? It's at the Hiltz's on September 8th. But uh, if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know we're in a series called Road Rules. And we've kind of been bouncing around through passages in Scripture. So if you have your Bible tonight, we'll be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're in luck because there's Bibles in your pews. But uh, we've also been giving away throughout this series Wawa gift cards. Aha, here it is. So I wanted to tonight recognize a couple uh, that's only been attending for but so long, maybe a couple months, but they're serving tonight for the first time. It's Dave and Vicki Byers. Just wanted to recognize you guys. Because <laughs> they got beautiful hearts that jumped right in to serve. And we've talked about it before. You look most like Christ when you're serving. Because his heart was, I don't come to, to be served, but to serve. So it's beautiful when you see people that show up in church with that heart. So thank you, Dave and Vicki. Uh, you're becoming a precious part of the church. We love you guys. But we've been in this series road rules because we're kind of in a, a season in the summer for road trips, for vacations, for driving to visit family. I was talking to a couple uh, just outside before service, talking about their trip to Texas and California and what it was like. It's just a season of a, of a lot of travel. And uh, whether you're driving there, flying there, you're on a cruise ship to get there, whatever it may be for you, I wanted to give us imagery to take with us. It's actually in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, where Moses is talking to the Israelites, and he says, impress these truths upon your heart. How? By just talking about them a lot. Talk about them when you're at the table. And then he says, even talk about them when you're out on the road. So I wanted to give us imagery to take with us whenever we're traveling, we're driving, because I know that doesn't end with vacations, right? We got to commute, we drive to work, we drive here, there, and everywhere. So that's what this series, Road Rules, is about. One of the key verses we've looked at is Isaiah Chapter 48, verse 17. Isaiah 48, 17 says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. So God is saying, look, here are paths that you should follow as you follow me. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. And God has been saying to all of humanity throughout history a similar invitation. Hey, these are the paths you should walk in to find life. You can follow me on these paths and find me. He, pray, he promises in Jeremiah, when you seek me with all your heart, right, you'll find me. And he's saying these are the paths and these are the pathways. We've talked about in this series that following God, it's not a, a one-time event. It's not, it doesn't happen in a moment. It's a lifelong journey. It's a long haul. It's obedience in the same direction, long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson says. And that journey comes with rules for the road, or as we've talked about in this series, just biblical principles we see the Bible gives us so that we can follow Christ well in life. And don't get it twisted. This isn't a self-help series. If anything, this is a series to help us die to self, right? As Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Hopefully this series equips us to do that better and better. Last week, row rule number six, we talked about host a bonfire. We talked 
about how there are things in life. We looked at Hebrews 12. Maybe they're not sinful. Maybe they're not inherently bad. But it says in Hebrews 12, there's things that hinder us, that hold us back as we're trying to follow Christ in this life, as we try to run this race. So we talked about creating a burn list. And like Elisha, he burned his plows. He, he cooked the cattle. He hosted a, a, an awesome barbecue probably. And he burned his history and his past. So there was no plan B as he set out to follow. And I wanted to have a bonfire last week. I really did. I wanted to set up a, a fire pit outside the exit so we could write down those things we're leaving behind our burn list and then on the way out throw it in there. But because of kids and lawsuits and all that good stuff, I, I figured no. And God bless my discernment because I think there was like a deluge and downpour as soon as I said amen last week. But just to let y'all know, uh, threw it on a Ziploc bag after service and I'm a pyro, so I still had a, my own little bonfire uh, Sunday night behind my house in my fire pit. I took those cards, whatever you wrote down, they were thrown in there, and they were burned. So in case you've been stressing that all week, they have been lit. So, and, and I'm no Boy Scout, never was taught how to build a fire. I've just done it a lot. And, you know, my dad taught me on camping trips and all that jazz. So I, I like to build a fire, and there's a poem. It's called, get this, Fire by uh, Judy Brown. That explains the technique, and not only does that, it sets the stage for the road rule for tonight. So the poem reads like this. It says, what makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tight can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between as much as to the wood. When we are able to build open spaces in the same way, we have learned to pile on the logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel and the absence of fuel together that makes fire possible. See, Jesus in the Gospels says that we're a light that's supposed to shine to the world around us through our deeds that brings glory to God the Father in heaven. And he compares our lives to flames. And this poem reminds us that a flame will go out if we don't mind the space around it. You can suffocate a flame if you just throw too much on at once. In life, physicians would say, well, you didn't mind the margins. Scripture would say you didn't mind its command to rest. And tonight's point as we work through this, this road rule is that when we forsake the space God gives us for rest, we do violence to ourselves. We suffocate the flame that's supposed to be a light to the world. And as we fittingly call it in our culture, in light of our theme, we'd say, yeah, you crash, right? You burn out and you, you crash. Road rule number two, weeks and weeks and weeks back, probably my favorite one, don't take Rainbow Road, shout out to Mario Kart, about guardrails, the ways that we avoid crashing, right? God's commands and the accountability that we can set up so that we never even get close to crashing because like David says in Psalms, we run on the path of his commands, and I've heard it said recently of the Ten Commandments, you could also call them the tender commandments. And what this guy's point was is that they're not coming from a position of oppression, but really tender love. What God is saying is, look, don't murder somebody, because not only does that hurt them, but it'll derail your life, right? You can sleep with somebody else's spouse, but that's going to hurt you, that's going to hurt your wife, that's going to hurt your kids, it's going to ruin your life. And you can live with envy and jealousy, sure, but the more you live with envy and compare situations, the more it will rob you of joy. This is God saying, look, I want you to have joy. I want you to have life and life abundant. These commandments are ways for you to walk in that. 
And, you know, Sabbath rest is one of those commandments. I think it's wild how we still agree that the, the other nine are, are still bad, but then the rest kind of just gets forgotten about, right? Murder, yeah, that's bad, right? Stealing, bad. Again, sleeping with somebody else's spouse, yeah, slightly frowned upon. All right, all these different things. Uh, even envy, right? Not good. But then you talk about being a workaholic. I mean, we kind of celebrate that, right? When we work a lot, we like to hold that up and, and show what a hard worker we are and how much we grind and how much we pursue those things. But we hold that up. God holds up rest. And we got to realize this command is crucial because God's our creator. He knows our limits, right? He knows how he created us, that we need rest. And, again, this is out of tender concern. And Jesus highlights this. Matter of fact, he shows us how to rest. He even says so in Matthew chapter 11. It's in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, and this is the message version, where he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So two phrases from that passage I want to look at tonight as we dive in. One is, I'll show you how to rest. And we'll get to this in a second. I want to look at three ways that Christ shows us how to rest in a passage in Mark, Mark 6, that we've turned to. But the second phrase is this idea of the unforced rhythm of grace. And I love that there's even just rhythm in this passage, right? He talks about, I'll show you how to have rest. And then in the next breath, he says, walk with me and work with me. Right? There's this, this balance even there with work and with rest. And it's really a beautiful picture of God's grace and the unforced rhythm of grace. That, yes, grace, <laughs> we're saved by grace, right? not by works. We don't have to break a sweat to earn our salvation. And yet we have our salvation. So that, as it says in verse 10, we can do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Right? Grace is something we receive without breaking a sweat for it, yet once we've received it, we're called to break a sweat. Right? Not only as we grow ourselves and transform ourselves, but as we reach the world as God has called us to. There's a balance. There's this rhythm of grace, this back and forth. And if you're talking about driving, right, there's driving, and then there's pit stops. There's working, and then there's rest. And that's road rule number seven. As we bring this all to a T, it's practice pit stops. You know, as a kid, I've talked again and again about how we used to make these 16-hour drives in the Dodge Caravan up to Illinois and 20-hour drives down to Naples, Florida in the same beat-up old Dodge Caravan. And I had a different perspective of pit stops when I was a kid. The purpose to me as a pit stop when I was a kid, my mom always reminded me every pit stop, right? You trash your trash. Before you unbuckle, before you get out the car, we're passing this bag around. If you've got trash, you're putting it in the bag. Second reason for a pit stop, everybody uses the bathroom. Oh, I don't have to use the bathroom. Doesn't matter. Get out. Go use the bathroom. Sometimes they have a little more love than that, but that was the idea, right? I thought just pit stops were, hey, we use the bathroom, we get rid of the trash. That's the reason. But once you've driven some of these drives, these drives that take all day or last into the night or start early in the morning, you realize that as the driver, pit stops are, are for you as well. So you can stretch your legs, get some fresh air, try to catch a second wind. Because driving tired, driving worn out, driving with your eyelids shutting on you, it doesn't just stink, it's, it's dangerous. You know, a couple years ago, what they call drowsy driving was responsible for 72,000 crashes, 44,000 injuries, and 800 deaths. That's literal car crashes in the states alone. Again, those are literal car crashes. But we crash proverbially, we crash physically as we work and we work and we work and we labor and we labor and we labor. 
and it's far more than 72,000 annuals. There are some 225 million work days that are lost every year to stress and burnout. Where we work around the clock and it ends up costing us and it ends up costing our employers. But you know, you talk about driving. I used to live about three and a half to four hours from my parents in college. And my strategy, because I could do it at 19, 20, 21, is I would wait till about midnight, go fill my tank at Wawa, always get an apple fritter and a Mountain Dew. You could do that at 20 and not gain weight somehow. And then drive to my parents from like midnight to four in the morning. And I would do that because nobody's on the road. You got the whole road to yourself. I would turn on some loud music where the singers scream at you. And, you know, I'd roll the window down and I'd make it there. And then my parents knew in the morning I'd be there. And that's how I would get home. You can do that when you're young, right? We're tempted to drive through the night. We're able to do that now because of technology. We got cars with headlights. We got street lamps and street lights. where You could, if you want to, drive all night. But we're human. We still get tired. We can't go without rest. And in the same way that we're tempted to drive through the night, we're tempted so often in life to, to work through the night. I've shared this before. In 1910, the average American got nine hours of sleep. How many people here get nine hours of sleep on average? God bless you if you do. <laughs> you probably don't have a toddler. <laughs> they, the average now is less than seven hours per night. Why? Well, they say the reason for this is pretty simple. We got electricity now. There's light bulbs. So if you want to stay up past dark and work, you can do that. Your laptop's illuminated. You can sit in the middle of a dark room and still work through the night. And it's tempting. It's so tempting, especially when there's the weight of, of what's undone still hanging over your head from that day. But, you know, there's a great author, Wayne Muller, who wrote a book on the Sabbath. And there's this powerful passage in his book where he says that we can work without stopping faster and faster. Electric lights making artificial days so the whole machine can labor without ceasing. But remember, no living thing lives like this. There are greater rhythms, seasons, and hormonal cycles, and sunsets, and moonrises, and great movements of seas and stars. We're part of the creation story, subject to all its laws and rhythms. He says, to surrender to the rhythms of seasons and flowerings and dormancies is to savor the secret of life itself. He says, many scientists believe that we are hardwired like this, to live in rhythmic awareness, to be in and then step out, to be engrossed and then detached, to work and then to rest. It follows then that the commandment to remember the Sabbath is not a burdensome requirement for some law-giving deity where you ought, you better, you must, but rather a remembrance of a law that's firmly embedded in the fabric of nature. It's a reminder of how things really are, the rhythmic dance which we unavoidably belong. You know, hearing this eloquent invitation to surrender to the rhythms that we're a part of in creation stories, this invitation to rest, and it echoes Jesus' invitation to, again, these unforced rhythms of grace. Where we've got work, we've got rest, we've got work, we've got rest. And here he says multiple times, he speaks to this rhythm. And again, when we crash in life and we burn out as we work jobs and we, we follow pursuits, we call it in life. We often call it burnout. And I think it's fitting, again, in, in light of that poem, our flame goes out because we didn't mind the space. Right? Wayne Muller would say we failed to mind the rhythm. Again, physicians would say that we failed to mind our margins. And scripture would say, well, you, you failed to mind this command to rest. Again, the command to rest, it's not a rebuke, but it's a reminder. Wayne Muller would say it's a remembrance of the rhythm that we're a part of. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus didn't forsake this rhythm. He didn't forsake rest. 
And it's really eye-opening to me. You know, there's four Gospels, but to me it's most eye-opening in the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark goes through Jesus' ministry at a breakneck pace. Some theologians and, and, and people that study the Bible say he, he tells his gospel in a hurry. The word he uses more than any other is this Greek word for immediately or at once. And he uses it some 39 times in his gospel. He even skips the story of Jesus so he can immediately get to Jesus' ministry, right? The birth of Jesus is not even in there. He's like, this is the ministry. This is when it gets good, right? He gets out the gospel of Jesus much faster than any of the other gospel writers. You can read the gospel of John a little over an hour, between an hour, hour and a half, depending how fast you read. Someone's be like, I don't have time to read the Bible. You can read the book of Mark in less time than it would take to watch a movie. <laughs> but repeatedly, throughout Mark, there's pauses. And it gives us glimpses into Jesus' value that he puts in rest. Solitude and silence to be with the Father. This is a guy that loved to boat. This guy in the middle of a storm on a boat was asleep taking a nap, right? This guy valued rest. Jesus highlights rest. He wasn't pushed to some frenetic pace where he was going to crash because of his calling. And if you know who Jesus was, he had a pretty high calling, right? Bigger than any of ours. And yet he wasn't pushed to some crazy pace to walk it out. And in this way, Mark, who, again, many say he wrote his gospel in a hurry, invites us to join Jesus in being unhurried in life as we follow Christ and follow God. And as Jesus said in that earlier text we read, he said, I'll show you how. So I want to I read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. And the three things we'll break down that Christ shows us in this passage. It says in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Jesus had just sent them out, told them to minister in these ways. Not Again, we talked about it last week, pack light, go minister to these places says they're coming back. They told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So as we talk about this road rule and pit stops, I want to look from this passage three ways that Jesus shows us to rest. And the first is, is simple. It's no when to call it a day. You know, one study found that drivers who have been awake for approximately 18 hours or more perform similar or worse to a person with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05%. You know, on long road trips, nobody's Superman. Right? Nobody can operate without sleep, so don't be a hero. But how often, as we journey through life, right, do we have this temptation to try to be Superman? Right? We need to have that strength. Why? Because, again, there's a weight to what's undone. It's heavy sometimes when you get through your day and you realize, I've still got like 40 things on my to-do list. And you feel this weight, and you just want to shake it off and keep working and keep grinding. But... It's powerful to me in this passage. It says that, that Jesus turns to his disciples, and he said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. It says he said this because there were so many people coming and going that he wanted to break away to rest. And that's powerful to me. Because these people weren't just coming to high-five Jesus or get autographs. These were people with needs. Right? These are people that needed healing. Right, who maybe were bringing sick family members that were de desiring for Jesus to heal them in this way. And, and, and I, I think it's fitting that John the Baptist, Mark sandwiches 
different stories in his text like this again and again. And he throws John the Baptist in between the disciples leaving to do ministry and, and this passage after they got back. And I've studied this John the Baptist in prison and how, you know, Jesus says to him, I'm doing all these things. Blessed is he who's not offended by this. And it's a confusing statement, sometimes a confounding one. So just studying it, there's just this realization that for people like John the Baptist in prison, he was going to be beheaded in prison. That was, that was the end of his life. Right? There, there are so many that Jesus healed, yet every person in his region that came to him to be healed, he wasn't able to heal all of them. Blessed are those that aren't offended by that. It says Jesus withdrew, again, as many people were coming and going. There's a whole sermon to be preached on this and a whole sermon to be preached on that. Because I was studying these passages and there was a guy and his main point was that in the Gospels, he says, the only people who never got healed by Jesus were the ones who never came to him. But what about these people who it says were coming as he stepped away to rest? What about the people that showed up too late, showed up the next day thinking he was still there looking for healing? What about the people today who bring their sickness to Christ and they don't find healing? Is it a lack of faith, right? Did they show up in the wrong place? I don't think so. But I share all this because Jesus, he knew his purpose. He knew his finish line. The finish line for his life was to die on the cross for everyone. Everyone on the planet for eternity. All, not just many, would be saved and be able to taste the grace and goodness that flows from the cross. But no matter what your finish line is, eventually, if you give in again and again to the weight of the undone and the demands of others, you'll derail your destiny because you won't be able to rest. Eventually, you'll suffocate the flame. Eventually, you'll burn out, you'll crash. And I don't think this is a call to live selfish, right? I don't think anybody would say, yeah, that Jesus guy was pretty selfish. He died for the world, right? He died on a cross for everyone. But the point is that if Jesus died for me, Jesus died for my family, Jesus died for my neighbors, Jesus died for my coworkers. When I manage my schedule, I need to remember that I don't need to. I don't need to work myself to death. I don't need to be Superman. I don't need to operate like some kind of savior. As G.K. Chesterton once said, we're chief of creatures, but creatures nonetheless. We have limits. And knowing when to call it a day is tied to knowing our limits as creatures, again, that are a part of this rhythm in creation. You know, there's a, a prominent author, and I looked up how to say his name. It's ta Coates. He's a prominent author. He's written long-form journalism, books. Uh, he was the chief editor at The Atlantic for a decade. And he recently pulled away from this job. He's been in the limelight. He's on talk shows. He's on all kinds of things. He's a very prominent voice when it comes to race in America. And he pulled back. He said, I'm stepping away from this job. I'm stepping away from just everything I'm doing right now. And there was an article that was explaining his reasoning. And there was a pretty profound statement in the middle of it where it said, in the end, what looks like virtue, unbounded giving of oneself to the public, it easily becomes a vice. The lesson for the public intellectual then is a lesson for each one of us. To be faithful in our respective vocations, limits must always be observed. Limits of capacity, limits of ambition. Again, knowing when to call it a day is knowing our limits. And what's a practical application? How does this affect next week? How does this affect our lives? Is give yourself finish lines. Many of you maybe have a job where you're like, it feels like the work is never done. Right? It's 24-7. Maybe you're on call. That's just the way your work operates, where you feel like your work is never finished. Well, let me tell you, first of all, I feel you. Right? Ministry, is, is, it, is, it applies to people. 
People aren't projects, and they're never finished products. There's always more work to be done. There's always more encouragement. There's more uh, uh, ministry to be done, more things to send out, prayers I could pray, on and on and on. But advice I was handed stepping into ministry that I've always remembered is, is simple. Give yourself finish lines. We need annual finish lines. For some of us, our summer vacation is this finish line that we can look forward to every year where we get to rest. We need daily finish lines, something I had to learn, especially in, again, ministry or any job where it feels like you're working around the clock just at a certain hour, I'm done, right? not going to be checking emails, not going to be doing this or that. I'm going to focus on my wife. I'm going to focus on my kids because maybe you would say, well, I'll be fine. Right? I can work all through the night. I can work 24-7. Yeah, but what? it's not just about you. What about your kids, your family? What about your relationship with your heavenly father? The reality is we don't work because our, or we don't rest because our work is done. We rest because without it, we'll never be at our best. We rest because we can't do our work well if we don't rest. Again, the, the rest Christ shows us knows when to call it a day. But secondly, the rest, the rest Christ shows us. Say that ten times fast. The rest Christ shows us. It's not comatose. It's, it's active communion. What do I mean by that? Well, in our culture, we so often mistake activity for productivity. Activity isn't always productive. Right? And we so often consider rest, like rest is being inactive, right? So the, with rest, the more inactive, the more passive it is, the more we veg out, the more productive our rest is in our minds. But we don't just need to rest. We need our rest to refuel us. Otherwise, we'll burn out or we'll crash. Like you can drive forever, but not only are you physically and psychologically going to run out of gas, your car will run out of gas. That's why one of the most common pit stops is the gas station. You can use the bathroom, fill up the car, get the snacks you need, all the above, get some fresh air. But you got to fill your tank. I'm, I'm a dad. I'm in my 30s, my mid-30s. I'm fighting dad bod. Maybe some of you can relate. Right? So it's like I said, when I'm 20, I could eat apple fritters and Mountain Dew and all that at midnight and never think about working out and, you know, stay fit. You laugh because people tell me, right, you think it's bad at 30, at 40, drops off again, 50, drops off again, 60, falls off a cliff, right? As you go longer and longer, you got to work harder to stay fit. Now, I was reading an article. And it, and it asked this question, and I think it's profound even spiritually. This is no spiritual article. I think it was like men's health, right? The question was, do you rest or refuel? It says, attack recovery with the same passion as training, practice, and games. Now, as believers, we could ask, well, when we rest, do we refuel? And I would say we should attack rest with the same passion as serving, as outreach, as good works, Right. Why? Because it's as important and as imperative as any other spiritual discipline. Rest isn't some luxury. It's not a cherry on top. It's not extra credit or something we do if we get around to it. It's a necessity. It says in Mark 6, verse 30, again, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. They came to Jesus focused on everything they'd done and the task completed. And I bet Jesus was so proud of them, so full of love for his disciples, so excited for everything that they've done. But he didn't say first, good job. He said, let's rest. It says in verse 31, again, he says, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He says this was because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. You ever have those days where it's like 1 o'clock and you realize, I haven't eaten, right? Well, Jesus <laughs> knew that when we're too mentally and physically exhausted to even attend to ourselves, it was, it's time to pause. And I think sometimes in our culture, that's counterintuitive. Because we think, well, if you're a hard worker, you'll keep grinding. Because there's work to be done. There's people that need to be helped. How could you tap out so quickly? 
Again, especially when people need you, like they were looking to Jesus here. And we would call that person driven. We would applaud them. But just think about the word driven. Right? The word driven itself is passive in nature. It's not driving. It's driven. We end up driven about by our business. We're driven by the demands of others. We're driven by the weight of the undone. We're driven by the tyranny of the urgent. We're driven here, there, and everywhere by to-do lists and tasks. But ultimately, we have to ask, okay, who's doing the driving? And if we're doing the driving, then we need to take pit stops. We need to rest. Thomas Merton, he's an author, brilliant theologian. He says, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. You might think, well, he's a little extreme here. You look at Chinese culture, the, the words for in Chinese are these beautiful little pictures and there's syllables. And the word for busy is made up of two syllables, heart and what do you think? Death, right. You win nothing, sorry, I don't have any more gift cards. <laughs> the word, Chinese word for busy is heart, death. And then what they're saying is literally if you're too busy, your heart is dead. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying work is bad. Again, there's a rhythm. Work gives us life. Work gives us purpose. Work gives us dignity. Work was in the garden before the fall of man. Like God gives us purpose through the work we're able to do with our hands as we, we, we work in creation. We serve one another. But what we need to take note of is to be hurried and busy can cause heart death. Right? It neglects the space that makes room for the flame. And like a dead battery, when we have heart death, we need to be recharged. And we do that through rest. Again, rest isn't like a self-induced coma, it's, it's supposed to be communion, right, communion with God. I always try to remember on my day off, rest isn't just unplugging, it's, it's plugging in. It's plugging into God. And while it's important to remember why we rest, right, we rest to recharge, I think it's important to remember why we recharge. Because I think sometimes we could get it twisted and think, well, yeah, uh, I need to recharge so I can go back to being Superman. But we got to remind ourselves when we rest who Superman really is, right? If this was Superman, then we're Jimmy Olsen. Maybe that means absolutely nothing to you, so let's turn to Scripture instead. And in Psalm 46, verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We receive this call to be still. Why? Because it puts God in his proper place again. You know, the world will go on just fine when I decide to take a day for rest. There's sometimes this stress we feel when, when, when we rest, like I have so much I could be doing, right? But what if these balls get dropped? No, when you rest in life, God's got your neighbors in his hand. God is almighty. He's sovereign. He's good. And when we rest and we actually unplug to rest and we plug into God and we be still and know he is God, we remind ourselves of these things. In this way, rest, it's not really a form of laziness. Really, it's a form of worship because rest puts God in his proper place again. It says after be still, it says I will be exalted. You know, I think sometimes when we're finally still, we begin to realize what we've been exalting all along. Sometimes I think we can be jolted when we finally stop and reflect and look at our life. And we realize what's been on the throne. I know sometimes I've been guilty. I'll stop doing and simply listen to my heart, and I realize that I'm not anchored to anything because my very identity has become synonymous with my job or my activity or the things on my to-do list. 
You know, recently, Anthony Bourdain, he was a beloved chef, travel personality, a documentarian. He committed suicide. And there was an article on his life. And again, this article had a pretty profound statement. It said, Bourdain freely acknowledged that part of the reason he continued to work at such a frantic pace was that a, he had a fear about where his mind might go if he ever sat still. You know, sometimes when we take this command in Psalm to be still, something profound happens. Sometimes it shows us that all our busyness and, and our drive to be driven and to be a workaholic, it can be the white noise that sometimes we use to drown out the unwanted emotions that would come up if we ever sat down to be still and rest and drown out the, the soul's cry when it lives under the tyranny of lesser gods. Again, it says, be still and know that I am God. You know, this command to rest God initially gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai as they were coming out of Egypt, right, in the book of Exodus. They'd been in slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt, for generations. So this generation of people at Mount Sinai, their identity was slaves. Their identity was work, work, work. Lay bricks, make bricks, build, work, labor. That was their identity. They didn't, have, they didn't get vacation. They didn't get paid time off. They were slaves. And God tells them at Mount Sinai, rest. His point is, you're not some doing machine. You're, you're my children. You're my nation. You're children of a king. God doesn't want you to simply get work done for him. He wants you to delight in him as he delights in you, to step into communion in rest. God wants our rest to be more than, again, a self-induced coma or, or unplugging. He wants us to plug into him, step into communion. It's this invitation we get in rest, not just this rhythm, to know there's, there's a time to rest and you got to know when to call it a day, but there's also this invitation to communion, to plugging into God. And that's truly how we refuel in life. But then lastly, the rest Christ shows us. I said at one time that time. It leads to selflessness, not selfishness. You know, one way that my generation, the millennials, right, people say that with so much shade these days. I think a millennial, though, is like 40 years old. Talk about millennials like they're teenagers. Now we're we getting old. <laughs> but uh, one way that millennials, my generation, has come to value unplugging is through what we call self-care. Right? My generation spends twice as much as baby boomers on self-care. What's self-care? Workout regimens, diet plans, life coaching, therapy, apps to improve well-being, so on and so forth. It's created what, what, what they call is it a self-care industry that's worth $10 billion. And there's pros to this. There's benefits to self-care, clearly, right? There's a self-awareness. There's an increase in emotional intelligence. But obviously the trap in self-care that everybody is, will speak to is that self-care unchecked can flow into self-absorption. And self-care is great. We should practice self-care, but we should always be mindful with self-care because, as we've said again and again, a faith that is solely inward-focused, it's out of focus. Right? God didn't save us so we could be navel-gazers and just care for ourselves. No, he gave us a bigger calling. And, yes, self-care is important, but self-care, a Christ-like self-care doesn't lead to selfishness but to selflessness. I love that this, this God, Jesus says, let's go away and rest. Amen. I'm sure they got some rest on the boat. Again, if it's like the storm, Jesus is probably taking a nap in the front of the ship as they're sailing. But it says when they get to the other side of the water that just people show up. It says in verse 32, they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Again, Christ-like rest, Christ-like self-care leads to selflessness, not selfishness. Caring for ourselves is what should, be, what should equip us for caring for others. You know, if you look at the heading in, in Mark 6 in my Bible, it's, this is the story where Jesus feeds 5,000. He sees a need, and the disciples play their part. How else does rest play a part? How else does rest equip us to be selfless? Think about it. Stillness, being still, heeding this command to be still, that's a prerequisite for presence. God tells us to be still because as we're running around here, there, and everywhere, it's hard to step into communion with him. And it's the same way with the flesh and blood around us. You know what I found? (laughs) It turns out when you have time to do what our culture would call a whole lot of nothing. I go for walks all the time with Raj just through the neighborhood. Not in our culture, not being very productive, right? I'm spending time with my son. We're walking around. I spend time chatting with my neighbors. Again, our culture would say that's not working. It's probably rest. It's doing a whole lot of nothing you actually start to get to know the people around you. You know, the people that God calls us to reach and and minister to. It's hard to do that when our only escape is into exhaustion. But when you actually begin to practice daily finish lines, resting once a week, that stillness is a prerequisite for presence that, that God can use this calling. I think sometimes we take this calling to reach the people around us. We make it so weighty. It's all about outreach and, and, and service trips and, and, and drives and distributions. Sometimes it's as simple as pause for a second, be present, and you can get to know the people around you. You'll recognize that the people around you, like we see in Mark 6, they need to be fed what you have. And if I could have the worship team come up, all this talking about rest, there's clearly work for us to do. I don't think you can read through your Bible cover to cover and miss that, right? There's work for us to do. These gospels end with the great commission where Jesus ascends to heaven and he gives us, passes the torch to us to go and make disciples and share the good news and share the gospel. But we got to remember as we do this, God isn't taking resumes for the Savior. God isn't receiving resumes for the Messiah. He already died for the world. So, again, we don't have to kill ourselves striving to save it. We can step into this rhythm And have rest. Because listen, the world needs rested Christians. The world needs refueled Christians, energized Christians, alert Christians. And perhaps one of the ways that we will burn and shine the brightest in our culture of burnout is to live counterculturally and live in a life that that has this balance and rhythm and space for rest. One of the ways that we won't shine and our flame will go out if we don't mind the space. If we lose margin and lose rest. You know, the Hiltzes are going to be in the back to pray if you need prayer for anything. But I just want to pray over us. If we could stand as we're about to go into worship. God, I pray. God, I pray that we would hear the same invitation that you gave to your hardworking disciples. And I know I've been guilty of this. How at the end of the day, I judge my day's productivity based on what I got done on a to-do list. And I look back, if I got all of it done, then I feel good about myself. If I only got half of it done, then I'm like, man, I got to do better tomorrow. It's not about how close I felt to God. It's not about the people I helped or the things that I learned. God, I pray that you would help us to rest in you. God, help us to give up this artificial urgency that sometimes we can place on ourselves to be Superman or be Savior. God, help us not to live under this tyranny of the undone. Help us to be still. 
Help us to remember what you did on the cross and really what that signifies, that you died for us and you saved us completely. I've been reading through Galatians this week and where where Jesus, he died and it was sufficient. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to throw our effort on top of that to save ourselves, God. And I pray that that would give us a peace that would give us this invitation to rest, to rest in you, to rest in what you've done. Just to read that poem again, it says, what makes the fire burn is space between the logs. A breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed too tight can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between as much as to the wood. When we're able to build open spaces in the same way that we've learned to pile on the logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel and the absence of fuel together that make fire possible. Jesus, tonight we make space in our worship as we close service. Holy Spirit, we make space in our hearts and in our lives to to speak to us ways that we need to to change or be convicted or establish finish lines. Maybe you're speaking something entirely different, but we know that when we open your word, that you're here to help us rightly divide, God, to guide us in all truth. God, I thank you that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God, there's freedom from bondage, but there's also freedom to rest. Rest in what you've done and who you are, that when we rest, you you're sovereign, you're good, you're almighty, and we praise you for all these things as we praise you here tonight. In Jesus' name. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. And you have been so, so good to me. breath you breathe your life in me and you have been so so kind to me Don't deserve, still you 